All right, uh, this morning I want to begin by asking you, what are some of the things that Christians say to one another um, when things are very difficult or when there's a problem or a tragedy or some kind of suffering that we are enduring? What are some of the things Christians say to one another in the midst of those? What's that? Pray, yeah. You just need to pray, right? Okay, what else? God is in control. Good, what? The Lord has a plan, absolutely. What else? What kind of encouraging things are we trying to help them to sort out? Okay, Romans eight twenty eight. Yeah, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Absolutely. What else? Yes. Okay, sure. So uh, we have sometimes we, uh, we can respond like Job's friends and assume it's as a result of sin that they're suffering. So we kind of try to do some backdoor approaches to implying that. What else? We're missing a big one, the one we're going to hit today. Okay, yeah, well, that's a good thing to do, absolutely. Point them to Christ. There we go. God will never give you more than you can handle. We hear that a lot, right? Well, the question I want to ask this morning, is this a biblical statement? And where does it come from? Where do we get the idea uh, that God will never give us more than we can handle? Okay, good. And that's going to be the verse we focus on this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. But before we get there, I want to look somewhere else to help us uh, make a quick run to that, uh, to the answer. Is this true? Is it true that God will never give us more than we can handle? So go first to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter one. Someone read for us verses eight and nine. Okay, now flip over to chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 6, and someone read for us verses 4 through 10. Yes.
Okay, thank you. So, does it sound to you like God gave Paul more than he could handle? It does to me. It sounds to me like Paul is saying that very thing. God has given us more than we could handle, right? That's especially what he said there in the first part of chapter 1. We don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experience. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So the question we want to ask is, why is it that God put the Apostle Paul and his associates with him into a place of such despair that he was uh, at the place where he said he even wanted to die? That's what that means. Why did God do that? Okay, for his own glory. Sure. Look at. <laughs> sure. Look at. Look again at chapter one and verse nine. We we read it earlier. Well, I want to uh, remind you of what it said. Verse nine of Second Corinthians one. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely. Not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So our despair, our affliction was so terrible that we, uh, we despaired of life itself. We felt like we had a sentence of death. But God did that to us so that we wouldn't rely on ourselves, but we would rely on him instead. And so God actually does this to his people quite often. We get to a place where we say, I can't do it. I can't take it anymore. I cannot continue to go on. I am at the end of myself. And I want to argue this morning that one of the worst things we can say to someone in the midst of that is, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. Because who are we pointing to at that point? Ourselves. We're pointing to ourselves. But the crucial question comes... What now? Where do I turn? What do I do when I am at the end of myself and I don't feel like I can go on? I don't feel like I can do it anymore. What is God's purpose of doing this in our lives? That's the question we have to ask. And we have to ask, is this loving? Is it merciful that God would put me in this place? So what do we say to that? When someone is in the midst of their suffering and we say, God has a purpose for this. God has a plan in the midst of your suffering. And the question is asked, well, is that loving? Is that merciful? How do we respond to that? Yes, okay. (laughs) Why? Okay, so God's showing us mercy in that we deserve far greater, sure, in terms of suffering, right? Sam? Sam? Great. So the more the Lord strips us of ourselves and brings us onto himself, uh, the greater off, the better off we are, right? 
It's actually God's gift to us that he would do this to us. And so in our suffering, in our trials, in the circumstances that weigh down on us to the point where we feel like, I have, I have no way out. I have no way of dealing with this. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm at the end of myself. This is the love of God. This is the mercy of God because he's keeping us from looking to ourselves for strength. He's stripping us of any self-reliance, which really in turn is self-righteousness. I'm depending on myself for something. Instead, he's bringing us to himself. This is why God allowed Paul to be burdened beyond his strength. That's the language Paul used. So the Lord was teaching Paul not to rely upon his own strength, but to rely on the strength that comes from God himself. Uh, that same strength and power was exerted, Paul says, when, when Christ was raised from the dead. Go ahead, Lee. So you always say everything. Mm-hmm. Are you in First Corinthians? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. We're gonna we'll jump on that in just a minute, actually, and help us get a, a broader context of why Paul gets to this place where he says what we sometimes uh, wrongly assume he's saying. Um, we have to look at it, as Lee's pointing out, in the context of what he is actually discussing. Now, this, this idea of walking through life, enduring suffering and trial and hardship, ultimately for our good, is not just for Paul, it's not just for the apostles, it's not just for super-Christians, it's for you and I. We go through all sorts of things in our lives that are burdens, don't we? Weekly. Daily sometimes, we have new burdens arise and, and as they pile on, we get to the place where we say, I don't, I don't think I can handle this. I don't know what I'm going to do. And that's a good place to be. Anything from suffering physically to struggling through uh, something spiritually to be burdened by a conflict we're having relationally, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I believe that God really has a purpose for everything that I encounter in my life? And if the answer is yes, and it should be yes, then I have to ask the question of myself, what is God's purpose in the midst of these struggles? It's a valid and very important question. What is God up to in the midst of all of my trial and struggle and burden? That's going to change the way we deal with our circumstances drastically. So I want to say the idea that God will not give us more than we can handle isn't only not biblical, it's really a lie. It's not true at all. There's no aspect of it that's true. Uh, in fact, it's the exact opposite of what is true. God will give us more that we, than we can handle so that we will be humbled and brought to the end of ourselves that we would more fully rely upon him alone. We need to realize that our life and our breath and the sustaining power of everything that goes on in our lives is from God alone. 
In John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so it's, we have to come to the reality that it's not only the, the burdens and the struggles and the suffering in our life that we come to that we have no control over and that we would say, I, I really can't do this on my own, but we have to look at all the good things in our lives and say the same as well, right? Apart from Christ, we can do nothing, good or bad. Nothing comes apart from Christ. So where does this idea come from? God will not give us more than we can handle. Well, as we've pointed out, it's in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So let's look at the context of this verse and get a right understanding of what Paul is saying here. So let's begin in verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6. And we'll read all the way through 14. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So let's talk about context. What is going on here? What is the issue that Paul is addressing? What's that? Idolatry, good. It's the main theme here. And what was going on with the Corinthians that Paul thought it necessary to address idolatry? What's that? Okay, sexual morality. What else? Okay, they're abusing the gifts that God has given. Yeah, there's pride and they're trying to outdo one another. Yeah, what else? What's that? Yeah, grumbling, complaining against one another. Yep. Just complete disarray and disunity in the church. Some of them running back and trying to incorporate old pagan practices that they were accustomed to into uh, Christian worship. So all of these things we can summarize and say that they were all being tempted to do certain things that God has commanded otherwise, right? So the issue here is not hardships in life. The issue is temptation, Paul is addressing the temptation of the people in Corinth to run to idolatry of all sorts and kinds. So what warning is Paul giving them then? What is he, he's gives, uh, he, he gives us uh, what's going on here, what they're up to, but then he gives a warning to the Corinthians. And what is the warning? Okay. 
Okay, good. So the problem is that they are very arrogant in the midst of their sin, right? They're saying, we're going to uh, to push the line as far as we can, and we have this great confidence that we will be able to resist the temptation. Now, most of the people in the church at Corinth were idol worshipers before they came to Christ. They attended popular feasts and festivals in the pagan temples. They ate and drank to excess. There was rampant sexual immorality. Um, This was a part of the pagan worship practices. And so now, some of them were saying, we worship Christ, but we still want to participate in these things because those people are our friends and they're our neighbors. And we want to... Uh, We want to be with them in the things that they're doing, the celebrations they're having, the festivals they're taking part in. But Paul is saying, this is idolatry. And as Christians, you are to no longer walk in the ways you once walked. And if you think you can go and be a part of these things without falling into sin yourself, take heed lest you fall. You're a lot weaker than you think you are. In fact, you're being arrogant in thinking that you can escape unhindered. So the Corinthians believe now that they were Christians, and they certainly were, it seems, by um, the way that Paul was addressing them. But now that they are Christians, they no longer worship idols, but they wanted to be a part of the social life of the city. It's a big temptation. They wanted to be a part of all that was going on, and so they began to rationalize it. As long as they had the proper perspective on idols, knowing they were idols, that they were meaningless, Uh, They could give themselves absolute freedom to participate in all of these things so long as they didn't succumb to temptation. And in fact, it's uh, it's widely understood that they were even to the point of saying, we'll even go through the rituals and all that's going on because we know at least in our hearts that we are not worshiping idols, we're worshiping Christ. Now, if you think that is far gone from today, there is a move... uh, it's been going on for several years now among uh, um, missiologists, those who study missions and missionaries themselves who do mission work in predominantly Muslim areas. They've tried to think of ways to protect new Christians from being killed because they've converted from Islam to Christianity. And so one of the things they've instructed Christians to do in some of these places is that they continue to immerse themselves in Muslim culture even including going, uh, continuing to go to the mosque and go through the prayers, the five prayers a day, but in the midst of those prayers, uh, going through the physical motions, but praying to Christ instead, continuing to follow all the customs of eating and dress and festivals and all of these things. And so, in other words, they are sort of secret Christians in the midst of a Muslim culture. Now, There are some issues of wisdom that need to be considered when someone converts to Christianity in an environment that is so hostile. Um, However, I want to argue that uh, going that far is not the way to do it. Um, You didn't see the apostles in any way in a very hostile environment. They just saw the one they were worshiping crucified on a cross, and they didn't say, well, let's continue to live as the Jews because we are in danger. Uh, There was a very different attitude, uh, so much so that they rejoiced in being able to be afflicted physically as a result of their preaching Christ. And so... 
There is no way that a Christian can fully immerse themselves in the things going on in the world that are anti-Christ and continue to walk faithfully with Christ without being stained by these things. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's the whole discussion that Paul is having through a few chapters in 1 Corinthians, right? How far can we go with certain things? These are the questions the Corinthians had. Um, let's, Let's talk through this. We'll get through the context a bit more. That'll help answer some of that. And maybe at the end we can have a more uh, uh, discussion on the application of all of that. Um, Because that's an important question. Um, And this this comes down to, are are we willing to play with fire, assuming we can't get burned in the midst of it? Uh, Paul knew that that wasn't the case with them. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10 are all about. How much liberty do we really have in Christ? And in that liberty, um, what, what are the boundaries of wisdom? And how do we draw those boundaries? And how does it affect those around us? Um, so we have to acknowledge up front that Paul was acknowledging that we do very much have freedom in Christ. We have liberty as Christians to do certain things in certain ways. And for, um, for me, it may be a liberty, but for you, because of uh, your circumstances, because of a, a former association with certain things, whatever it might be, it may not be a liberty. And so I have an obligation to protect you and not flaunting my liberties to those who struggle with those things, that I would be purpose uh, cause for them to sin because I need to take heed of myself lest I cause others to fall and I fall myself. So there are a lot of questions to ask in the midst of it. What Paul was doing here in this passage is delivering a very stern warning to the church that even though they did indeed have freedom in Christ, that they must be very careful with it and not use it as a license that they could somehow cause someone else to fall into sin. It'd be a very good idea to, um, to consider all of our freedoms and wonder whether or not uh, they are things that should always be exercised in front of other Christians, especially knowing that there are those who are not strong enough to resist temptation. In fact, that's not only um, unwise, it's extremely unloving. It's very selfish. And so Paul wants them to be willing to limit their own freedom for the sake of the weaker brethren. That's what he deals with uh, a bit earlier uh, in this section. And so Paul goes on to use his own life as an example. Uh, He limited himself for the sake of others. He renounces his own rights. He renounces his own freedoms for the sake of the gospel. For example, 
even though he had every right as an apostle to receive financial support from the church because he was preaching the gospel, he was giving himself fully to that work, he forsook that right and instead he worked bivocationally as a tent maker so that he could avoid any criticisms whatsoever from the Corinthians that thought maybe he was preaching for money. Now, why was that an important thing for Paul to forsake in order that uh, others wouldn't stumble in the midst of it? What was going on in their culture at the time that led to Paul saying, I need to take up another pursuit to support myself so that they don't have a wrong impression of why I'm preaching? What was going on? Okay. Sure. So there was a mixture of, there was false teachers who were teaching a false gospel, seeking to earn something for their own gain. There was also a group of people called sophists, who uh, their whole career was made on standing up and being able to give eloquent speeches. And uh, just like we would maybe go to a movie theater to watch a movie, uh, they would go to uh, a place to hear someone give one of these eloquent speeches. Uh, And they all rejoiced in the eloquence of the speech. But it became something that people did for enormous amounts of money. And you can think today about people who, um, you know, apart from claiming Christianity, those who go around the world giving speeches. I think last I heard that uh, Bill Clinton goes and he won't speak for less than $250,000 a time uh, to get up and basically say for 20 minutes things he's said 100 times before. Um, that's kind of the idea of sophistry. They were going around making large sums of money off of their speech. Um, And so, in some ways, Christians um, struggle today with holding that balance uh, ourselves, right? Because we have within those who claim to be Christians, those who will go and they seek to become rich off of preaching and being in the ministry. Uh, We see it especially in those who are most famous and on TV and have their own radio stations and all of this. Um, But it's not to the point of me needing to go find another career yet, so don't get any crazy ideas. (laughs) So, So Paul limited his freedom in this regard to prevent his ministry from being misunderstood and criticized. And he did this so that he could win people to Christ. Now, this becomes an issue of cross-cultural missions. Um, What are some ways that Christians might need to limit their liberties in Christ for the sake of winning uh, the hearts of those they're attempting to reach in another cultural setting? Maybe if you've been to another culture, you can think of something that is perfectly acceptable for Christians uh, in our cultural setting, um, but maybe not somewhere else because there is such a stigma placed on something uh, that we don't even have the opportunity to talk to them about the gospel. Personal space is a great one. Um, In fact, I'd say in America, we're probably... um, we flip that. Uh, we, we require a lot more personal space than others. Uh, when I, just a few weeks ago in Nigeria, a man was talking to me, and I felt like I kept backing up, and he kept inching toward me, and I was getting up against the wall. And they like to hold hands and all that kind of stuff. And uh, for us, that can be strange. But uh, what's that? <laughs> yeah. Good. What else? 
eating pork, sure. Uh, as much as it pains me, there are places where it's probably not right for me to jump right into uh, roasting pigs and eating bacon. Oh, that's hard to say. But for the sake of the gospel, I'll do it. <laughs> what else? What's that? Coexist? Yeah. <laughs> How about our, our clothing, right? Um, there, there are ways of dressing that uh, you get into certain cultural environments that is just not acceptable. In fact, even in our own culture, I will go to some of our sister churches and knowing that um, I, not even the people in the congregation dress like I do when I preach here, that I will go and I will wear a suit and a tie and be choked and hot the whole time, uh, but I will do it for their sake because what's the point? Why, why cause them to stumble over something like that, having no opportunity to have the discussion, to work through it, uh, to, uh, to discuss whether or not that's really something that needs to, uh, to be an issue worth raising? Let's just forego our, uh, our liberties for the sake of others. There are all sorts of things we can come up with that come to this conclusion. Cultures vary. Uh, there are many different perceptions about things that we might recognize as liberties, and they may very well be. But there are times to not partake in them for the sake of others. Those who desire to partake of liberties have a greater responsibility in protecting our, you know, our own hearts from going too far in them that we would fall into sin and ensuring that we're not doing them in such a way that is going to be cause for others to stumble. So this is Paul using himself, his circumstances as an example. But the Corinthians were not like Paul. They were a little puffed up. They were not very careful. They were willing to push their freedoms to the extreme in order that uh, they could uh, get all that they wanted out of it. Um, but they were flirting with disaster because they were not mature enough to resist the temptations that came with it. And they fell back into their old ways. Uh, after using, uh, so here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses some Old Testament illustration about uh, the Israelites and how they continually fell into temptation. And Paul warns the Corinthians using these illustrations, telling them to not be overconfident in their own abilities because they, uh, they won't be able to stand it. And if they think they do, they need to take heed lest they fall. The second we say, well, that's... I don't have to worry about that ever being a temptation to me. That's when we have to begin to worry because we're going to fall into it. That's what he's pointing out in verse 12. But then Paul turns a corner and he talks about temptation in general. He goes from a warning to a word of encouragement and insight. And this is where our verse comes in. He begins talking about the normal human experience. And it is common among all of us that we will be tempted from time to time. Now, here's a question I think is important for us to answer and to remember when we are tempted. Is being tempted a sin? Am I in sin when I'm being tempted? No. The temptation itself is not the sin. The sin is when I succumb to that temptation, right? So Paul's pointing out here, no one should ever say, well, my temptation is different and no one else has ever been tempted in this way. 
He says quite the opposite, right? One writer has correctly pointed out, circumstances differ, but basic temptations do not. Temptation is a universal issue. We, and as Christians, those who are walking in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, we are free to not give into temptation. We have the ability to not walk into that temptation. And sometimes it feels so strong and such a heavy weight on us that we feel like there's no other way to get around it. However, we're told specifically in the scriptures that we have a way out. We need not give into temptation. Christians are able to not sin. Now, whether we do or not is another question. And we certainly will never reach perfection because we continue to struggle with the flesh. But we have all the means necessary to not sin. Now, Paul pictures God looking into our situation, in verse 13 here, sympathizing with us in the midst of them and extending his hand to help us out of it. Um, consider uh, the writer of Hebrews has several things to say about uh, temptation In Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and verse 15, we read this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Christ, our high priest, has been tempted in every way that we have. And so we can never say my temptation is different from any that anyone else has experienced. If no other person other than Christ has experienced it, we have enough. Because Christ has experienced temptation in every way that we have, and yet he was able to do so without sin. And so we should never say we had no choice but to sin because the temptation was too great. There was no way to escape it. Well, Paul's telling us God knows our limitations in terms of temptation. He will not, and here's where the confusion comes in, he will not allow any temptation to supersede a person's ability to resist it by the power of the Spirit that dwells within. He will provide all of the spiritual resources that are necessary for us to sufficiently endure temptation that we not fall into it. So when we are tempted, what should we be looking for? What should we do in the midst of temptation that feels so heavy, so strong, that I don't know if I can get away from it? What do we do? What's that? Yeah, good. To be reminded of God's word, right? As we talked about last week, we have this means by which God is bringing grace in our lives, sustaining us as Christians. I remind myself in the midst of it, there is no temptation strong enough to... Uh, that you don't have a way out. You have a way out of this temptation. I want to remind myself of the word. What else can we do? Pray, yeah? Ask God to strengthen us in the midst of our temptation. Lord, help me, keep me from going into this. Keep me from temptation that I not fall into it. What else? Kenny? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, good. We, we need to depend on the body of Christ, right? And to call my friends and, and those who love me, those who know the struggles and the things that I endure in my life, that they would help me to fight and resist that temptation because I don't have to go into it, right? Anything else? 
Exactly. Sure, remove ourselves from the situation. Sometimes as Christians, I think we want to think, I can resist this. So I'm going to set it right in front of me and I'm going to muster up all the power I need to resist it. That's foolish. That's Paul saying, take heed lest you fall. Run away from it. Get away from it. Cut off your hand and gouge out your eye if it's necessary to resist the temptation. Get away from it. Do whatever is necessary to keep it from you. You're not strong enough to resist it when it's right in front of you. Good. Well, God has ordained ways out of it. And when temptation is heavy, we should be looking for the quickest way out. Run away from it. Get as far away from it as we can. And we are assured in God's word that he helps us in our temptation. Chapter 2 of Hebrews and verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Christ has suffered through temptation. He can help us in our temptation. Now what did Jesus utilize when he was being tempted? Scripture. He turned to the word of God. Every time, uh, remember, three times he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness and three times he responds with the word of God. Even when Satan was trying to twist the word of God, Jesus came with a correction. And so this is uh, a reminder to us that we need the means of grace. We need to know the word of God. We need to know how to rightly apply the word of God. That's why things like what we're discussing here are so important Because while I'm in the midst of physical suffering and trial and pain, um, I can lie to myself and say, well, God's never going to give me more than I can handle, so I need to find a way to be strengthened in the midst of this on my own so I can make it through. Well, that's not true. God is giving me more than I can handle, so I will depend on him more fully. But when it comes to temptation, I know that I will not be tempted uh, beyond my ability to endure it and that God has given me a way to escape it. And Christ has endured all this temptation. And I have the spirit of Christ and therefore I am able to flee from it and not fall into it. I have the ability as a Christian to not sin. So we need to understand the word of God in its right context so that in these times we can utilize it properly. And that it is a help to us and not something that we just walk in and wonder uh, if I'm ever going to make it through.
Amen. Our ability to endure temptation has everything to do with how well our souls have been fortified by the word of God. And it should, uh, it has to reside deep in us or else it's not going to be of any real use. You know, sometimes um, people will ask me, well, why, why, is, why is all the theology and doctrine, why is all that very important? I love Jesus, you love Jesus. Is that not just enough? Why can't we just love Christ together and that be enough? Well, when it comes down to my suffering and my temptation, if nothing else, there's a lot of other reasons, but when it comes down to those two things, suffering and temptation, I want to know what the word of God says and what I can rely on. And I don't want to be relying on things that aren't true because they won't pan out in the end to be of any use to me. So if I am going to tell myself that God will never give me more than I can handle in terms of suffering, and yet that's not what the word of God says, then I'm relying on a false promise. And so it will never get me to the end that I'm hoping it will get me to. That's why it matters. It matters that I know the word of God and I know how to rightly use it because I don't always have someone else there with me. I can't use your sword and you can't use mine when we go to battle. We need our own swords and they need to be sharpened. We need to know how to use them properly. And so it's been the experience of many Christians, myself included, that the Spirit of God has a way of bringing scriptures to mind at just the right moment when temptations arrive, and that is a gift of God. And that is the Spirit of God enabling us to stand firm in the midst of our temptation. So what Paul is saying really here is indeed good news. It is good news for us. But it's not about our suffering. It is about our temptation. And so when it comes to life's hardships and difficulties, we should be prepared to receive more than we can handle. And God is giving that to us to drive us to himself that we would rely on him all the more. But when it comes to trials and temptations, we should be looking for a way out because God has provided that way out. And he has given us his word and his spirit that we not succumb to these things. Well, we're out of time for Sunday school, so I will pray and have much here for us to contemplate, to consider, um, and maybe some of these questions we weren't able to answer. If I have a chance this week, I'll send out some things uh, via email for you to, to read and consider as well. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, uh, for the authority of your word in our lives, uh, for the goodness of your word in strengthening us, in giving us uh, promises that um, help us to endure and uh, for reminding us, Lord, that indeed there are times when you give us more than we ourselves can handle and it is for our good that we would rely all the more fully on Christ alone. And so, Lord, in our suffering, in our trials, as we endure these things, we pray, God, that you would help us to stand in Christ alone and not depend on our own strength and not even depending on common grace and the means of the world around us, but depending fully on Christ, knowing that he will do what is right for his people. 
And in the midst of temptation, Lord, help us to be reminded of this uh, very passage that we need to take heed lest we fall. We do not have the ability in our weak flesh to withstand temptations apart from Christ, that we need to flee from them, and that we have the promise that you will not push us into temptation that we are unable to flee from. You have provided a way of escape. Help us to know your word, to remember your word, to recall your word, and to utilize your word in a way that will strengthen and, and cause us to endure in the midst of struggle and temptation, that we would flee from it, and that we could rejoice, that we not give in, that we not sin, uh, but that we uh, continue to walk in holiness and godliness for your namesake for your glory, and for our good. Lord, prepare our hearts now as we gather for corporate worship that all of your people would rejoice in Christ no matter our circumstances, uh, even those who are sorrowful, that they would always be rejoicing in Christ Jesus alone. We ask this in his holy and precious name. Amen.